0: What Doctrines Are Worth Fighting About? Leading Christian Apologist Norman Geisler joins us to discuss the issues that divide Christians and where Christians must stand strong without compromise, and how much responsibility does government bear for societal breakdown, and what should government do? This is Jerry Johnson Live from Criswell College. Join us as we look at today's news from the Christian Worldview for Christ and Culture.
1: Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. December seventh, nineteen forty-one, a date which will live in infamy. I have a dream. It depends upon what the meaning of the word is. Yes. And the people who knock these buildings down will hear all of us soon. We will not tire, we will not falter, and we will not fail.
0: Welcome to Jerry Johnson Live. For the next hour, this is your place for relevant discussion of topics in the news and in our culture from a Christian perspective. Later in the show, we'll open the toll-free lines for your questions and comments. You may also email us at talk at jerryjohnsonlive.com. Now, here is Penna Dexter.
2: It's clear to me, and I think to my Republican colleagues as well, the president just says his only plan is to keep roughly 140,000 troops there until the next president becomes president and hand off the problem to him or her.
3: Well, that's exactly what the president's generals are saying he ought to do. That was Senate Foreign Relations Committee Chairman Joe Biden. And, of course, this is after General David Petraeus spoke before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee yesterday. Uh, He actually got a better reception from the senators than he did back in September. And uh, many sources have pointed out that that's because the surge is actually Working, uh, But Senator uh, Biden had some criticism for him. Here is uh, David Petraeus. Uh, Of course, yesterday, the general did lay out the progress and the challenges in Iraq.
2: The capabilities of Iraqi security force elements have grown, and there has been noteworthy involvement of local Iraqis in local security. Nonetheless, the situation in certain areas is still unsatisfactory, and innumerable challenges remain.
3: General Petraeus continued his testimony today, uh, but he said that the military uh, is looking at how to draw down more forces in Iraq later this year.
2: We have a number of months uh, and a number of substantial actions to take before then, uh, but we are already identifying areas that we think are likely candidates for that.
3: Of course, uh, all the surge troops will be out by July. That's the plan. And again, testifying uh, before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, General Petraeus said the U.S. just can't let up in this fight against Al Qaeda. We have
2: the forces that we need right now. I believe we've got to continue. We have to we have our teeth into their, our teeth into their jugular, and we need to keep it there.
3: And uh, the Wall Street Journal points out that if the hearings had a common theme, it was the contrast between the serious of General Petraeus. And the sensitivity of Democrats to domestic political concerns and, uh, of course, also an election coming up. But, ladies and gentlemen, we do see uh, evidence of the moral breakdown of society all around us. And some of us uh, look to government to fix this, and uh, others say that that's really up to businesses and individuals. What is the real role of government in building a civil society? We're going to talk about this with Don Eberly later in the program. He uh, heads up the National Fatherhood Institute and also the Civil Society Project. Also, uh, we may get to uh, the issue of spanking because the Washington Post, a certain columnist there said uh, that a father needs therapy because he's spanking his kids. And, of course, we'll get your input on that. But first... Exciting guest, uh, one of my favorites out there. And uh, we, it, of course, lots of us enjoy a really good spirited political debate. Even when things get kind of nasty, we have our positions and we stick with our candidates, and that's all well and good and a lot of fun. But what about the differences in the realm of our faith, in the realm of Christianity? People can become polarized over issues of doctrine, over eschatology spiritual gifts, uh, lots of things that we can disagree on, uh, but still operate together as Christians. But then there are the foundations for salvation, the things that Christians have got to stand firm on, and really there's no compromise allowed. And there's a lot to sort out here. And to do this, two theologians have cooperated uh, on a project that I think is really going to help believers. It's a book entitled Core Beliefs, Conviction without compromise, and uh, the two authors are Ron Rhodes, who has been a guest on this program before, and our guest today, Dr. Norman Geisler. And I am so thrilled to have us with us, uh, with him, have him with us. Uh, let me tell you just a little bit about him before I bring him in. He is a leading Christian apologist and thinker. He's authored. 70 or more books. It's probably lost count by now. Hundreds of articles. Uh, He's taught at the university and graduate level for 49 years. And uh, he co-founded in 1992 Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. There he is professor of theology and apologetics. And uh, he has written many, many very, very helpful books. This new book is Conviction Without Compromise. Dr. Geisler, thank you so much for joining me.
4: Kenneth, it's nice to be with you.
3: Well, it's great to have you, and I think this is such an important effort uh, that you and Ron Rhodes have put together here to think about what are the things that are just uncompromisable, and what are the areas where Christians who believe differently can still come together as Christians and in fellowship. And I think, you know, first of all, would you just lay out for us, where can we not compromise i mean things like the trinity things like salvation and scripture are just uh, bottom line for most christians aren't they
4: yes they are um the book is set up in three parts in essentials unity and non-essentials liberty and all things charity now everybody agrees with that statement but not everybody agrees with what are the essentials and so what we did that no one's done before is to give a comprehensive list of the essentials to prove from the bible what the essentials are and incidentally, they match the early creeds and confessions of Christendom. So there happen to be 16 of them. 16 essential doctrines, including those that you mentioned: the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the uh, death of Christ, the resurrection, His second coming, and then, of course the Bible, the infallibility and inerrancy of the Bible, and then the uh, literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of it. So 14 of them deal with salvation. One deals with the basis forward in Revelation, the Bible, and the other one deals with how to interpret the Bible. You put these together, and uh, this is the hill on which we should die. Uh, these are the ones that uh, the sine qua non, we don't give on, in essential is unity, means in the, these essential doctrines.
3: All right, Dr. Geisler, we've heard Barack Obama out there on the campaign trail, and I'm not going to ask you to tell me whether he's a believer or not, but there was one uh, time that he was interviewed uh, that made me uh, well, it just made me squirm a little bit to hear the answer, because uh, he talked about having a relationship with Jesus Christ and how that was necessary for salvation. But then he went on to talk about uh, people who he didn't think had that relationship, and yet they were such a good person that he didn't see how they were not going to get in heaven. into heaven. And so this is an area where, uh, you know, people that call themselves Christians, I mean, we've got to stand up as Christians and, and disagree with that, don't we?
4: Yeah, there are three uh, views, and unfortunately we're uh, drifting into pluralism uh, or inclusivism more and more, and the Bible happens to take an exclusivistic stand. I was debating an atheist at Rice University a number of years ago when I taught in Dallas there, and uh, he said, well, you Christians are narrow-minded. He read my book, Christian Apologetics, and he said, you say Christianity is true and everything opposed to it is false. So when I got up, I said, you know, you humanists are narrow-minded. You think humanism is true and everything opposed to it is false. Everybody who makes a truth (laughs) claim is uh, thereby saying everything opposed to it is false. So uh, there's no one that's more narrow or more broad than anyone else in the marketplace of truth. The opposite of true is false.
3: You know, I mentioned the Trinity, and of course that's one of the foundational core beliefs, but there are folks out there... And they're really appealing to young people right now that are saying the Trinity is not an essential belief for Christians. And some uh, some young people are buying into this. It's becoming very confusing to them. Can, can you tell us why the Trinity is uh, a no compromise tenet of the
1: faith?
4: Uh, the reason is, of course, everybody uh, believes in God the Father. You have, that's the, the one uh, God... Um, the thesis that Christianity is built on, the question is, is Christ God? And, of course, he is, because if he isn't God, he can't reach to God, and if he isn't man, he can't reach to man. And the reason that uh, he has to be God, along with the Father, two, uh, two of the three persons in the Godhead, is that salvation depends on it. He's the one mediator between God and man, and you can't mediate between God and man unless you're both God and man.
3: You know, uh, there's uh, something going on in, well, I'm thinking particularly right now of the Episcopal uh, Church. And uh, even in the news right now, there's a court case having to do with uh, the churches that pulled away in Virginia and uh, because of certain uh, positions on the issue of homosexuality. And, you know, what about that? Because, you know, these people felt that this was important enough to split about. Uh, Is it?
4: Well there are some things over which you must uh, divide and there are some things over which you may divide and uh, the 14 or 16 doctrines we're talking about are things over which we must uh divide because uh it's better to divide by the truth uh, be uh, divided by the truth than to be united by error so we set forth these 16 fundamentals of the faith saying that these we have to stand on and these we have to divide over and if uh, If that's the way uh, it's going to be, then we'd rather be divided by truth than united by error. Uh, When you come to ethical issues like uh, homosexuality and those, that's a different ballgame. We're simply talking about the doctrines here that deal with salvation in the Bible, and there are 14 of those, and the other two, the Bible and how to interpret it.
3: Okay, well, we may get into to this uh, the wisdom of dividing over these things a little bit later in the program, but um I think another area that we need to talk about because we've talked about this a lot on Jerry Johnson Live recently. We did a whole series of programs on the resurrection. Of Christ, and how important that is, so uh, Dr. Geisler, would you share with our listeners uh about the resurrection? I mean, we know about the death of Christ for our sins, and we know about the resurrection. sometimes we major on the on the death more than the resurrection, but the resurrection is
4: key well i I fought the battle for the resurrection for ten years and wrote a book on it, the uh, Battle for the resurrection uh, and there are people inside I took a survey of the Evangelical theological Society, the most conservative. Group of uh Christian scholars in the country uh a couple thousand or three thousand uh, people uh belonged to it and uh, discovered <clears throat> that uh, uh nearly eighty percent of them uh, uh, did not uh, uh, you know but believed in the orthodox doctrine but the others denied the uh doctrine of the resurrection uh now if that's going to happen in the, among our most conservative uh scholars how how about the uh, liberals and less conservative? The truth of the matter is, the Bible says that without the resurrection, there is no salvation. Uh, Paul said, if Christ be not risen, we're, our faith is vain. We're still in our sins. Can't get much clearer than that. And it has to be a bodily resurrection because the body died, and if the body doesn't come back to life, then there is no resurrection. So, this is um, a fundamental uh, without which we can't be saved, and it happens to be one that if you don't believe in, you can't be saved. Some of the fundamentals, like, uh, let's say, the uh, bodily ascension or the present uh, priestly intercession of Christ, are not part of the gospel in the sense that you have to believe them in order to be saved. But this when you do. You've got to believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, Romans ten nine.
3: Dr. Norman Geisler is with me, and he is the co-author with uh, Ron Rhodes of a new book, Conviction Without Compromise, Standing Strong in the Core Beliefs of the Christian Faith. Of course, we've been talking about some of the core beliefs, uh, things like the Resurrection Uh, The inspiration of Scripture, we really haven't gone through that yet. Uh, We've talked about the Trinity. We've talked about uh, Christ's atoning death. And, of course, another essential is Christ's virgin birth. Uh, And, ladies and gentlemen, it's all laid out here in this book. This is a great resource. Uh, Next up, uh, we're going to continue with Dr. Geisler. And we're going to talk about some of the areas that are maybe gray areas. And, you know, what are areas uh, that are worth having a church split over, What issues are worth fighting for? Uh, And what about some of these uh, moral, ethical areas that uh, people fight about in the Christian faith? What about Calvinism uh, and and Arminianism? What about these areas? These are uh, big areas of discussion in uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, for instance, uh, right now at this time. And these are important things to think about. So stay with us. And uh, we also will take your calls at 800-881-9270, 800-881-9270. Uh, Your questions and calls for Dr. Norman Geisler. Stay with us.
1: partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? No partnership. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? No partnership. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial or Satan? No partnership. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And the answer to those is negative. This is John MacArthur inviting you to a very special event. Friday night, April 18th, we'll be at Crossroads Christian Church in Grand Prairie.
0: Friday night, April 18th, it's an evening with John MacArthur.
1: I love the fact he is called the Living God. Don't forget, April 18th, 7.30 p.m., an evening with John MacArthur and you, our faithful Criswell Communications family. Why? Just to say thank you for your faithful support of this radio ministry. From San Angelo or Texoma or even in the Metroplex, you're invited to this evening with John MacArthur. The Spirit lives within us. The Spirit of Christ, the living God, dwells in us. April 18th at 7.30, an evening with John MacArthur. A free gift from our family to yours on CRN.
0: You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live! Now, here's Penna Dexter.
3: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Jerry Johnson Live. Uh, Here's a saying that I think is uh, pretty appropriate for this discussion in essentials, unity, in non essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And Dr. Norman Geisler is with me. His book is Conviction Without Compromise. We're talking about the essentials of the faith and the non-essentials that we can disagree on and uh, still live together. And Dr. Geisler, I think the first thing I really want to ask you about is end times theology, because there are folks uh, who believe in uh, pre-trib rapture, post-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, the second coming of Christ could happen, you know, this time or that time, and there's uh, lots of differences of opinion on this. There was a big debate here in Dallas on it recently. And, uh, you know, how important is your view of eschatology to your ability to fellowship with other believers?
4: Uh, Well, first of all, uh, it's not one of the essentials. Uh, The essential is that uh, Christ is coming back bodily and literally, and there's going to be a heaven and a hell. That's uh, embodied in the creeds and is taught clearly in the Bible. Beyond that, um, it's never been codified in the uh, early church and the creeds and councils or uh, made a test for orthodoxy for Christendom. Uh, We have our own beliefs. I have my own uh, beliefs on the matter. That's not the point. The point is, is this one of the essentials of the Christian faith, whether it's pre, post, or mid? And the answer is no, it's not one of the essentials. And therefore, we shouldn't make it a test for orthodoxy, and we shouldn't stop fellowshipping with others who believe the opposite view.
3: Actually, it's really a lot of fun to talk about prophecy with people, and if we don't get too heated and upset about it, I think it's a good discussion to have. Let's go now to Tanya in Rockwall. Tanya, thanks for calling in.
5: Thank you, I uh, Yes, I had a question in regards to the fact that, you know, we have made some great strides in um, reaching out the uh, remote parts of the world uh, with the gospel, but how do you respond to someone who is concerned for a uh, someone they know uh, that has, in some of those remote parts, that may die before they've had the opportunity to hear the good news, and how is their eternity? Um, what type of eternity are they facing?
4: That's one of the top ten questions of all time. It always comes up in any uh, large group of people you have a chance to answer questions, and the reason uh, for that is, is because uh, it uh, seems to imply. Uh, by it, uh, some injustice uh, in God if those people uh, are lost. But I think you have to separate the question. First of all, are those who die without hearing the gospel lost? And the answer to that is yes, Romans one nineteen and 20. Uh, they're without excuse because they know there's a creator they haven't responded to. And Romans 2, uh, 10, uh, or rather 12 to 15 says, they have a law written in their hearts and those who per- will perish without of the law of Moses because they have a law in their hearts. The second question is uh, not about condemnation but about salvation. Can they be saved through that general revelation? The answer is no. Historically, the Orthodox Church has uh, been opposed to salvation through general revelation. The gospel only comes through special revelation. How shall they hear without a preacher? There is salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. Now, that being the case, the question arises, how can that be fair? And the reason it's fair is because if you don't respond to the light you have, God is not responsible to give you more light. Seek and ye shall find. Hebrews 11.6 says, He that comes to God must believe that he is, and he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So all who seek will find. God will send them a Bible, mail them a tract. Uh, he will send a missionary if need be. He could give them a vision, a dream, uh, send an angel. Uh, God is not, um, doesn't have his hands tied with ways that he can get the message to them, but the Bible does clearly teach that they have to get the message of the gospel. They can't be saved without it.
3: Tanya, thanks for your call, and uh, let's go now very quickly to Amy in Dallas. Amy, thank you for calling.
5: Hi, Pina. I just wanted to see if Dr. Geisler could maybe clarify a little bit on his earlier comment about homosexuality, because um, I think that the Bible is very clear about moral issues, and I would think that um, the way that he made it sound earlier is that that may not be a splitting issue, and I would think that that would have more to do with having an accurate view of Scripture um, because I think that the Bible does teach very clearly about um, what's right and wrong and that and other areas. So I wanted to see if you would clarify that. Um, just Great. Because I...
3: Okay, that's good, Amy. And, you know, it, it's really the idea of what are the sins, but uh, what are the doctrines of salvation? And Dr. Geisler, could you speak to that? Because I think I want a little more clarification, too, on whether it's a splitting issue.
4: Yeah, uh, good question. Uh, when we're talking about, in our book, Essentials Unity is... Uh, doctrines that have to do with uh, salvation, so that's not the issue. We have another book called Legislating Morality, where we deal with homosexuality and say that it's wrong according to the Bible, it's wrong according to the uh, natural law, and uh, it's a very serious uh, uh, sin, and it's one that we Uh, should uh, uh, have laws that uh, relate to, as well as the uh, Church should discipline people who are practicing homosexuals. We shouldn't be ordaining them, we should be disciplining uh, them. So I have very strong views on that. It just doesn't happen to be uh, the topic of my book. I have Mm -hmm. other books, Christian Ethics and Legislating Morality.
3: Okay, yeah, because I think a lot of people, they can't uh, really abide church leadership saying, you know, we're going to affirm this lifestyle. Well, absolutely, and I don't
4: either, uh, uh, but it's another topic for another day.
3: Okay. Well, uh, we'll ask you on another day, (laughs) because I love talking to you. All right, Dr. Geisler, I want to ask you, though, about the issue of baptism, because, uh, you know, there's there's different ways of baptizing people, and in certain Christian denominations, uh, infants are baptized. Uh, And so that, of course, and I'm already, you know, very clear in my mind on the fact that that is not uh, an issue of salvation, but it is an important issue for people. So could you talk about baptism?
4: Yeah, uh, here again, uh, there's nothing wrong with having convictions. I'm baptistic in my uh, convictions, so I believe you should be a believer before you're baptized, and I believe you should be baptized uh, by immersion. That's not the point. Uh, That has never been a test for orthodoxy. Uh, You can be perfectly orthodox and hold all the 16 fundamentals of the Christian faith and hold uh, an infant baptism and baptism by sprinkling or pouring. That's not one of the fundamentals, and we should not stop separating. Uh, We should not start separating from other Christians who believe the opposite or consider uh, them heretics because they don't believe in our mode of baptism.
3: Here's a biggie. What about uh, female leadership in the church, especially in the senior pastor position?
4: Now we're now we're talking uh, uh, about uh, church administration. We're not talking about uh, the uh, sal- salvation doctrines of the Christian faith. And to me, that's not a, an issue to separate fellowship from someone else. I know a number of people who believe uh, in that. I don't. I believe the Bible teaches that uh, an elder must be. Uh, a, the husband of one wife, so it has to be a male. Uh, but the question is, is that a test for orthodoxy? And, and uh, my answer to that is no. It's never been put in any of the creeds or councils of the uh, church, and the Bible doesn't list it as one of the uh, 16 fundamental doctrines that make salvation necessary.
3: Okay, uh, I mentioned before the break I wanted to ask you about Calvinism, and I really do, because um, I'm starting to see. Um, you know a spirit of sort of division even within denominations about calvinism and uh you know is that something worth uh the energy that's being put into it right now
4: well uh i'm i'm a moderate calvinist so i'm opposed to both arminianism and strong calvinism that's not the point. The point is is this a test of orthodoxy and the answer is no.
3: And maybe you could kind of explain those two positions too.
4: Yeah, you know, the uh moderate calvinist uh, believes that Christ died for everyone's sin and you have to believe uh as a condition for receiving uh justification uh and uh, irresistible grace is only uh, exercised on the willing not the unwilling. Whereas the extreme calvinist believes in uh, the tulip, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. The Arminians uh, don't believe in eternal security, and they believe that God's predestination is based on his uh, foreknowledge, and you can lose your salvation. Uh, so there are at least three different views there, and many more views, and they're all within the bounds of orthodoxy. You're not a heretic for believing any one of those. And
3: is this explained in your book, Dr. Geisler?
4: Yes, it is.
3: That's good, because I think it's very helpful for people that are dealing with this right now in other churches. See,
4: that's why we have the book in three parts. In Essentials, Unity is part one. In Non-Essentials, Liberty, you're free to believe any one of those you want to believe because it's within the bounds of orthodoxy. And the third section, in all things charity, let's uh, learn to agree to disagree agreeably with people i've had people because i'm not a strong calvinist i've had strong calvinists tell me i couldn't possibly be saved
3: well, let well, me ask you one question because we're running up on the end and this is this is important with regard to this and that is losing your salvation i mean to believe that can you really be an orthodox believer and believe that
4: yes in fact as a matter is most people throughout the whole history of the church uh, believe that it wasn't till, it was not until uh, the time of the uh, Reformation that any major uh, groups believe that uh, all of the regenerate will persevere and could not lose their salvation. Anselm, Augustine, Aquinas, uh, uh, the early church fathers, and it was a Catholic yeah.
3: yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Geisler, this book uh, is a tool. It's got tons of information in it, and I think uh, that it would just be something that would be Really, a good thing for Christians to have on their bookshelf. I mean, I can think of questions that could just come up in your daily life and discussions where you could refer to this. And uh, so I think it's, uh, you yeah, know, I really recommend it. Uh, Norman Geisler, thank you so much for joining us today. There's lots of other things we could talk with you about, so we will do so in the future. Thanks thank for joining you. me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to switch gears next segment. Uh, did you hear the story of the class cheerleader who was beat up by a gang of friends? What does that say about the culture uh, and how can we build a civil society? Is that up to government or can individuals and businesses do more uh, to make things just a little bit more civil in the world that we live in? We'll talk about that with Don Eberly next up.
0: listening to Jerry Johnson live now here's Penna Dexter fire. That's what you
6: get
7: the fire
6: Oh yeah baby oh yeah
5: Don't hit the shelf don't hit the shelf don't hit the shelf Do something I don't want why do anything. That's
3: fair Ladies and gentlemen uh, this is some disturbing raw video of teenage girls uh, beating another girl Uh, And uh, they wanted to post this video on YouTube and on MySpace. And uh, reportedly there's a revenge factor here, some of the things that this victim had said about them online. But if you watch the video, you see her in a fetal position. And then standing later, all the while she's being beaten up, and it started when she was actually led into a room and then thrown against the wall. And uh, I just want to go to uh, AP because uh, they did a report on this beating it begins uh, with the victim's dad.
4: I have no desire to see the video.
3: 16-year-old Victoria
6: Lindsay's dad is speaking out after this violent footage was taken of eight teenagers beating up his daughter. He says he was shocked when he saw her at the hospital.
1: Um, I didn't recognize my own daughter when I went in. Um, her face was disfigured. Um, She was crying.
6: A police report says when Lindsay walked into a friend's house, she was immediately confronted by two girls. One of the girls allegedly then slammed Lindsay's head into a wall, knocking her unconscious. When she woke up, six girls were around her, and the attack continued. Police say two teenage boys waited outside the house serving as lookouts. All eight teens have been arrested and charged with false imprisonment. Lindsay was treated for a concussion and damage to her left eye and ear.
1: Uh, I just held her told her it was going to be okay.
6: Lindsay's father says the girls filmed the beating because they were hoping to create a popular video on an Internet website, such as YouTube or MySpace. Judy Boisha, the Associated Press.
3: Well, if you go to uh, YouTube, you do find some beatings online. And, you know, I think you expect uh, boys to beat each other up. But when girls are doing it like this and uh, wanting to post it for some sort of publicity, and this was a real thing. I mean, she actually experienced loss of vision and hearing. It sort of says something about the degradation of the culture. There are other stories out there in the news. And uh, so with us to talk about this and what should be done about it, because a lot of people say, well, the government needs to step in and do something about this. Well, you know, how can they? Don Eberley is with me. He's former deputy assistant to President George W. Bush. Uh, He also is the founder of the National Fatherhood Initiative and the Civil Society Project. He's a former deputy, as I said, former deputy assistant to the president, uh, and also has served as a senior counselor for civil uh, society at USAID, which is the U.S. Agency for International Development. Don, thank you for joining me.
7: Well, thanks for having me.
3: Well, we aired this uh, particular piece of news just to sort of give an illustration of the degradation of society and uh, just uh, these child crimes that are out there. Do you have a comment on this and how people, you know, want to run to the government to fix this sort of thing?
7: (laughs) Well, thank you. I was trying to imagine how I was going to follow on that piece. But, uh, no, that's horrible. And uh, the... uh, one of the things that i think emerges from the discussion we're about to have here is that communities and cultures either nourish the ability among people to live together uh, or they are in conflict and what we're seeing around the world is the rise often of factions of uh, ethnic and sectarian and other forms of division but we also see uh an enormous rise in voluntary associations that have been that bring out the best in humanity as well much as we've seen in america That's actually the whole thesis of the book. I mean, you you read about and you hear about the horrible cases, and we just heard one, and there's plenty of conflict and division around the world. But it's also true like never before that the things that we have had to enjoy in the U.S., like very rich uh, kind of civilizing civic associations, non-governmental institutions, are thriving around the world, partly as a result of the interconnectedness and the technology that's now available. But I maintain these civic associations, and they include, of course, voluntary organizations and congregations and people of faith joining together for in common purpose, uh, are exactly the kinds of seedbeds of democratic values and practices that the world needs more of. And so my book is really actually about more of a good news story, I'm afraid. It will probably bomb for that reason.
3: Uh, Well, who knows? The book is The Rise of Global Civil Society, Building Communities and Nations from the Bottom Up. And I think the first way to do that, we talk about it often on this program, and you must be there because you founded the National Fatherhood Initiative, and that is to build strong families.
7: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, one of the things that we take for granted in the U.S. is that uh, we sort of assume that freedom is a secure and insured sort of way of life, whereas it's actually kind of fragile uh, the Founding Fathers anticipated the need every generation to renew the foundations, you know, civic institutions, social institutions, starting with the family. How do you socialize democratic citizens? And when you have 40% of uh, kids in America being uh, born into father-absent households and at least half spending a portion of their life uh, before turning 18 in a house in which the father doesn't dwell, You have, uh, you know, a very, very difficult time socializing children, and especially young males. Now, I don't know anything about the story, the background, of course, of the kids that you just, uh, involved in the story that you just conveyed. But it just happens to be the case that unless you're bothering, actually, the civilized people, you don't have uh, the basis for a free, well-ordered society.
3: Unless you're bothering the civilized people?
7: Uh, say that again?
3: Did you say unless you're bothering the civilized people, you don't unless, have a basis?
7: <laughs> unless you're bothering uh, to civilize people. That is, uh, the job of a culture is to take children into adulthood so that they can be full okay. practicing democratic citizens. That That isn't something that happens automatically. It does take families and it takes fathers.
3: Okay, what are the other uh, organizations, because I, I understand that your book is sort of about these groups, that do that uh, beyond the family I mean, certainly the church. What else?
7: Well, the big part of this story that uh I haven't talked about is the rise uh, amazingly of the private sector worldwide, and especially our private sector is what I call the force multiplier uh for global political and economic development. These are things that are not done or shouldn't be done, can't be done well by the government. They're being done by the private sector, and by that I mean not just business, but I mean congregations and civic organizations. One of the amazing things about our society today is just the extent of its global impact. Uh, We have now citizens, 50 million American citizens, engaged in a serious way with individuals or communities worldwide. Religious charities and congregations are engaged like never before. And, you know, 20 years ago, all the outflows from the U.S. were governmental. Today, 85 percent are from the private sector, including philanthropic, endeavors, including the work of congregations, but what I argue in the book is that in the vast number of these cases, we are taking American ideas of values and norms, what it means to be a citizen, what, you know, rule of law, human dignity, uh, respect for human beings, uh, into the farthest reaches of the world, and, and often to very, very positive effects. And the reason I wrote the book was because so few people know um What's going on in the world that we could say is actually positive, in which they have something to do with it? Because we measure uh, all the nightly news is about what our government is doing or not doing, failing to do, what our president is failing to do, how the whole world is against us. Well, there's actually an awful lot of very positive influence flowing from American shores today, and again, mostly through private, non governmental. Uh, institutions.
3: So I guess the point is, if you've got a problem with something, don't go to the government to get it done. Figure out what you can do about it and who you can join together with to do so.
7: Well, I would say that in just a slightly different way. Unless you have a body of citizens in a democracy or in a country that's aiming to be democratic, that learns through private means to work together, to collaborate, to be trustful, to resolve their conflicts, to deal with the issues that come up every day in a free society, you're not going to have a democracy. You're going to have something else. And, you know, one of the lessons we're learning around the world is that you can't just take democracy in in the form of elections and constitutions. You've got to have what I'm calling civil society, which is strong, rich, non-governmental associations that impart the habits of democratic life. And a lot of that has to do with dealing with conflict. And we're seeing the lack of that, apparently, in some of our own communities.
3: Okay. uh, Tonight, um, American Idol is going to be airing a special, and all three presidential candidates will actually be showing up, along with a lot of celebrities. And uh, this is Idol Gives Back, and it really has to do with HIV-AIDS, which is the worldwide problem we all think of when we think of America uh, having some help. Is this what you're talking about, partially?
7: Well, it is partially. Uh, private aid is now approaching $100 billion a year. That compares to $20 billion a year that's spent by our government. And I'm not here to comment on what our government does or doesn't do, but it's an underappreciated fact that our private sector is doing a phenomenal job, often doing things that the government can't do, or doing things in a way that surpasses the effectiveness of government. I was involved in tsunami reconstruction, and before our government could do anything, the private sector came up with $2.5 billion and rushed all kinds of effective assistance into the region. Our private sector came up with $7 billion for Katrina. And the stories involving private individuals, communities, schools, colleges, congregations, stepping forward to provide a, uh, direct assistance is a remarkable and noble story of American character at work in full display. And this... The point is, in today's world, it happens to be true that what individuals are doing voluntarily together to provide aid uh, is far more effective in many cases. Now, I also cover uh, the important developments internationally that have to do with replacing charity with business-based approaches. In Mm, other words, creating economic growth and jobs, because at the end of the day, charity isn't enough. We've got to be able to help communities and nations Uh, grow around the world.
3: All right. Don Eberle has been my guest. Don, thanks so much for joining me. The Rise of Global Civil Society is his book and uh, the uh, subtitle, Building Communities and Nations from the Bottom Up. Well, ladies and gentlemen, next up, I'm going to ask you to call in 800 because one Washington Post columnist basically says a sharp board, even a raised eyebrow, is usually enough to control a child. Is it? Is spanking appropriate? If so, when is it appropriate? When is it not appropriate? We'd love to hear from you. 800
1: For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? No partnership. Or what fellowship has light with darkness? No partnership. Or what harmony has Christ with Belial or Satan? No partnership. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? And the answer to those is negative. This is John MacArthur inviting you to a very special event. Friday night, April 18th, we'll be at Crossroads Christian Church in Grand Prairie.
0: Friday night, April 18th, it's an evening with John MacArthur.
1: I love the fact he is called the Living God. Don't forget, April 18th, 7.30 p.m., an evening with John MacArthur and you, our faithful Criswell Communications family. Why? Just to say thank you for your faithful support of this radio ministry. From San Angelo or Texoma or even in the Metroplex, you're invited to this evening with John MacArthur. The Spirit lives within us. The Spirit of Christ, the living God dwells in us. April 18th at 7.30, an evening with John MacArthur. A free gift from our family to yours on CRN.
0: You're listening to Jerry Johnson Live. Now, here's Penna Dexter.
3: Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. We aired that story earlier about girls beating each other up and uh, just sort of commenting on the degradation of society in a sense. And sometimes I think, uh, you know, kids would be better behaved uh, if their parents disciplined them when they are young. And there's a story uh, by my friend Bob Knight he's with the Media Research Center, about spanking. Uh, and he's com- uh, commenting on another commentator, a, a columnist for the Washington Post, Marguerite Kelly. And this was from the Family Almanac over the weekend. She says a sharp word, even a raised eyebrow, is usually enough to control a child. I do find that sometimes works, and it works with some children. Uh, but he says it's only if those, if the child is one of those compliant types who sits still and rarely raises a fuss. But if it's a boy... Good luck. This is from Bob Knight. Uh, This is a March 28th column in uh, Washington Post, and the title is When Dad Won't Refrain from Spanking, Son's Safety Must Come First. And a mother writes a letter, and she's thinking of leaving her husband because he spanks their 30-month-old son. So this means the child is uh, somewhere between 2 and 3. And the mother says, I could never spank my son. She was aghast when she learned the dad was doing this. Uh, She's especially concerned over an immediate spanking, whenever the boy has a tantrum and doesn't pick up his toys as he is asked. Well, I'd love to know what you think about spanking. Of course, it's not a good idea to spank when angry, angry and even Dr. Dobson says that uh, all the time. But uh, is a spanking effective? Is it a good idea? Is it biblical? Let's go now to the phones. We'll talk to Wayne in Dallas. Wayne, thanks for calling.
8: You're welcome. Uh, you know, I've, I've kind of grown up in the fact that when I was younger, I was spanked by my father. And he didn't do it out of anger, but at the same time, I knew that if I did wrong, I would be spanked, and that I respected him for the fact that he had the authority over me. And I just think that we look at our kids today, and plus I was a teacher in the classroom, and I look at the kids today and how undisciplined they are and how they seem to be going far to the other side of respect for the um, their adults and I realize there are adults also that, you know, they don't need to be spanking uh, because they do it out of anger sometimes, frustration. But, you know, I look at everybody that's making these judgment calls that we shouldn't do this and shouldn't do that. And I would think that the majority of us as grown adults were spanked as children. And I think that we turned out pretty well. And I don't see that there isn't, you know, should be a real issue with spanking. I think it should be done at the right time for the right reason.
3: All right, Wayne, thank you very much. I think in a sense uh, there's a time when uh, we actually do our children no favors if we don't spank them uh, because uh, for the most part uh, spanking is, is a deterrent factor, number one, and as Wayne said, uh, sometimes just that threat of a spanking will make kids behave. Let's go now to Cheryl and Garland. Cheryl, thanks for calling.
9: Hi. I just wanted to say that I was raised being spanked uh, when I needed it, I loved both of my parents very much. I knew that if I transgressed, that there were consequences. I think this is a very scriptural model. I don't think I was ever spanked unnecessarily harshly. But even my grandmother gave me a spanking from time to time.
3: Are you a mother? Yes. And have you adopted that philosophy? Yeah. Do you get uh, do you get grief to from our anyone?
9: Household as a as an, a mostly benevolent monarchy. <laughs> so <laughs> the parents
3: are in charge.
9: Yes, and when you know when people get so caught up in oh don't hurt the child, it is anti-scriptural. Spare the rod and spoil the child.
3: All right, you're quoting Proverbs. Thank you very much, Cheryl, for your call. That's Proverbs thirteen twenty four. He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. And, you know, promptly uh, sends a message that, um, you know, this was what you did, and I'm immediately going to punish you, and especially younger children really need that immediacy, I think, although you do need to wait if you're angry uh, until you calm down. Okay, let's go back to the phones. Stephanie is holding. Stephanie is in Louisville. Thanks for calling.
5: Um, I just want to disclose to begin with that I'm not a parent. Um, So I was um, a child and family studies major in college and a preschool teacher. Um, And something that we learned about that I thought was really interesting that one of my teachers said was that um, she felt that spanking showed somewhat of a lack of creativity from a parent. And what she meant by that was that a lot of times parents don't know how to react, and they get frustrated and they don't know what to do so they end up spanking their child and although that might work for you know a two or three-year-old just even the threat of that that they're afraid of you but after a while when your child gets older if you don't have any other way to discipline them except for spanking your child just has to grow in fear by you threatening to spank them harder or um, becoming a um... more of a disciplinarian physically and so I think that although... So what um, age
3: uh, would you transition out of spanking?
5: Well, I think that it might be different for every child. I think that for um, some children, the like I said, the threat might be enough to um, be a deterrent. But if you're finding that the child is becoming numb to the fact that you're spanking them and it's not working, um, I think that you need to be more creative mm-hmm. and think of other ways to discipline your child and things that might really get the child worse than um,
3: just hitting them wood, So Yeah. Well, um, first of all, spanking should never be done emotionally. And uh, <laughs> Andrew, <laughs> our producer, says the only numb thing he had as a kid was his rear end. <laughs> I just can't imagine that. He's such a great uh, young man. But, uh, ladies and gentlemen, that's part of the reason why, because his parents were good disciplinarians uh, with their seven children, and he was spanked. And uh, it really is sort of a simple uh, way of um, Exercising authority over a child You certainly don't want to do it In a way that's going to hurt them And uh, there are ways of doing that But uh, Bob Knight says And we're talking about the age When you kind of transition out of it Uh, He says when the kid grows bigger than you, it's time to deprive him of creature comforts like computers and car keys instead. So he's really sounds like uh, you can spank uh, even into the teenage years if necessary. I found with my kids, uh, the spanking done at a fairly early age, done with an instrument that wouldn't hurt, that was a little flexible, I actually would have them go get it. Uh, for me and of course they hated doing that and they would beg me not to have to do it and then using that and then with some love and uh, just a lot of uh, discussion afterwards was really an effective way to go and uh, it did become a deterrent and you really didn't have to do it very long uh, because pretty soon they realized uh, what was going to happen and they began to toe the line on those various areas and of course communication after the fact is a good thing so they can understand uh, what they did uh, wrong. Well, ladies and gentlemen, uh, let's just go back to the scripture. In Proverbs 23, it also says, Do not withhold correction from a child. For if you beat him with a rod, um, he will not die. And uh, you shall beat him with a rod and deliver his soul from hell. Really spanking uh, actually will spare them from a lot of problems later in life. And uh, children need authority. They love authority. They learn about authority from their parents. Ladies and gentlemen, tomorrow, uh, Dr. Timothy Paul Jones, professor of leadership at Southern Seminary, is going to join us. His new book is Conspiracies and the Cross. That ought to be interesting. Join us then.
0: You've been listening to Jerry Johnson Live, a Christian Worldview radio show